We are so pleased tonight that the program is offered in joint partnership with the Ivy Bookstore, if I might say, my personal favorite, <laughs> and Baltimore's NPR station, WYPR. And before, and before I bring up um, one of the stars of WYPR and a member of our board of directors, I'd just like to um, ask you if you could please turn off your cell phones and thank you very much and to let you know that there will be a book signing afterwards and the line will start to my left here and the Ivy Bookstore also has signed copies so just wanted you to know that. And now, Mr. Mark Steiner. Good evening and welcome to Enoch Pratt. I'm going to make this very brief because we're here to hear Garrison Keillor, not me. Uh, and I'm just very proud that I could do this introduction, though, very briefly, because if there's anybody to me who personifies public radio and the essence and heart and soul of public radio, it's Garrison Keillor. And he was somebody who started out in public radio a long, long time ago when a lot of young people in their 20s and 30s decided uh, this was the medium they wanted to be part of and started with his morning program way back before Prairie Home Companion started. And then Prairie Home did start. And since that time, uh, it's become not just uh, something we listen to, it's an institution in this country. And uh, one of the things that I think about a great deal of, of just the prolific nature of the man you're about to hear. I was trying to count the number of books, the novels he's written about Lake Wobegon, and I lost count. Uh, but we're reading Pontoon now, because he's going to join us tomorrow in my program. We'll talk more about that and other things. He also has written a lot of children's books, which are just phenomenal books that he's written over the years. He's put out albums of his, of his, his work. He's put out poetry books and anthologies of the poems that he loves, and also he edited a series of short stories. He's done so much um, in that era, and he's, I think there's one thing that made me realize who the essence of Garrison Keillor is in some ways, is uh, what he did in his series, The Civil War, uh, that you all may have seen. Uh, Ken Brown's Civil War series, he was the voice of Walt Whitman. And that just seems the right thing for Garrison Keillor and for all of us, because he is, he represents something deep in our American soul. He's the Americana spirit of who we are. And without further ado, let me introduce our own Garrison Keillor. Thank you so very much. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be in Baltimore, and it was great fun to do the show at the Hippodrome last night. And uh, I, uh, I don't feel that I got Baltimore right. I've been trying for years to try to get Baltimore, and um, so I hope that uh, we can come back and do another show at the Hippodrome, which is a great, great, uh, great theater. Not surprised to, uh, to, to know that the Hippodrome was in grave uh, danger of being torn down, and also not surprised that Baltimore is, uh, is a city that saves such a magnificent theater. 
as that. 1914 theater, which uh, predates uh, the movie palaces, and uh, uh, you did the right thing. And now to be in this uh, uh, great courtyard here under this, uh, under this skylight, we had nothing so, um, so magnificent as this in Minneapolis when I was a child. We um, had a big stone uh, castle of a library which was uh, downtown at the end of Hennepin Avenue, um, not, not at the end, but at, but at the end of the, of the, uh, of the strip uh, of, of Hennepin, uh, the, the part of Hennepin with the, with the rifle sport Penny Arcade and um, the, uh, the porno houses and the uh, porno bookstores and so on, and then came the library. And, uh, and then after that, Hennepin Avenue sort of picked up uh, a, a little bit, sort of gradually ascended from there. The box. The box. Uh, the box. Okay. The block. Thank you. Thank you. I first saw the um, Minneapolis Library when I was uh, 13 years old, and um, I wanted to ride my bike from my house, which was 10 miles away, out in what was then uh, truck farms in the countryside. I wanted to go to the library because I, I loved books. I had loved books since I was in the first grade, and I had a hard time learning to read. I, um, I was slow to read, and my first-grade teacher, Mrs. Shaver, Estelle Shaver, kept me after school to read to her and let me believe that I was doing this as a favor to her to entertain her as she was correcting papers. <laughs> to have a disability and to have a teacher who makes this disability seem like some special gift. Um, she would always compliment me on my reading, and when the old alcoholic janitor would come through to sweep the floors, she would have him stop and listen to me. Isn't he read beautifully, Bill, she would say. So that was my start. I didn't know it at the time, but that was my start in radio. I loved to read, and I read my way through the library in the little uh, three-room schoolhouse that I went to out in the country. And then I thought I would ask my mother if I could ride my bike into Minneapolis. But I knew that she would say no. And so I simply took off and went. <laughs> it was an early decision. I look back on it and wonder how I ever got the courage. I was such a cautious child, but I got on my bike and I rode, and I rode through a part of Minneapolis that no longer exists, where there was a cooperage, a barrel factory, and, 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 and there were big meat warehouses, men stripped to the waist on a, on a hot day, slinging big sides of beef on, on rails, on a hook, off to waiting trucks. There were printing plants out there on the north side of town, and everywhere you could look through open doors in those days before air conditioning and see men, many of them stripped to the waist, in, in the Munsingware factory and, 
and, and in all of the little workshops and machine shops and printing plants and the dairy, working, men working, which gave a sense of luxury to a boy. I was not working. I was on my bicycle. I was going to the library. I rode my bike up Hennepin Avenue, past the rifle sport, past the porn shops, which I didn't quite understand what they were about, assumed that anything they had would be at the library too. <laughs> and I made my way into the library through the periodicals room, which was populated by old raggedy men, unshaven, many of whom had their heads down on the tables on top of a newspaper. Nonetheless, they were welcome in the library. I made my way to the cage elevator that went upstairs, got off on the third floor landing, paid a stop to the Egyptian mummy who was lying there in his sarcophagus, and then went into the children's room, which was a great, a great palace of, of, of pleasure for me. When I was 14 years old, my brother, my, my cousin Roger drowned on the eve of his high school graduation, an event that just shook our family to its core. We were sanctified brethren, and Roger was an independent young man who, who was out at parties and who was carrying on an interesting life. And we weren't sure that he was saved. And so, and so it was a huge event for us. My mother, as a result, sent me downtown for swimming lessons at the YMCA. I went to one swimming lesson, and that was enough for me. I'm sure that it's all changed since then, but back then, they taught boys to swim, first of all, by having them strip naked and sit naked around the pool. And this lordly swim instructor, this young man in swim trunks, lectured us about swimming, yelled at us, then sent us into the freezing cold water one at a time to struggle there as he looked down at us and, 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 and laughed at us. It was, it was a brutal experience. It was just a brutal experience. One time was enough. And somehow, I only took one lesson to decide that I would go to the library instead. <laughs> it was right there. It was just two blocks away. And for four weeks that summer, I lied to my mother, I got on the bus, I went downtown, I walked toward the YMCA, I smelled the chlorine coming out of the basement windows, and I went up the block and I turned over to the Minneapolis Public Library. I decided that my fear of death was not that strong and that my love of books was greater. And there's a decision that changes your life, doesn't it? 
First of all, to love books and also to be willing to lie to your mother <laughs> and to learn how to do it well enough. And then when the family went to the lake for a picnic and she wanted to see you swim, <laughs> to be able to do it walking on the bottom and make convincing <laughs> crawling motions with your arm prepares you for a career in fiction. <laughs> I was, when I was 14, about six feet two. I weighed 138 pounds. I had wire rim glasses. My father cut my hair at home. There were six children and it had those unmistakable marks of the home haircut, that big high arch over each ear and cut up high in the back where it sort of bloomed out. Nowadays I see young men wearing their hair like this and it's, they pay people to do this. Uh, I had sort of high water pants, I had big feet, my arms stuck out of my cuffs. I had a lot of hand-me-down clothes, some of them from Roger, who had drowned, some from my older brother, some from my older sister. Uh, a white shirt with some decorative elements, a pair of jeans that zipped up the side. My mother said, they're just jeans, they're just jeans. <laughs> she didn't understand. And when you are this strange, and you also come from a group of people who are separatists, who are sanctified brethren, who, who teach you not to have any contact with the world, who are opposed to movies and television and fiction and poetry and dancing, rock and roll, all of it. What's one more odd thing to add to it? Why not just be a writer? So you go to a football school and everybody else is interested in football. One more thing on top of all the rest doesn't change anything. As long as you're a nerd and a geek, just go all the way. And so that's what I've been doing. I wrote since I was a child. I wrote for the New Yorker magazine, though they were not aware of it at the time, <laughs> because I loved those old humorists who wrote for them, James Thurber, and especially his uh, My Life in Hard Times, his stories of Columbus, Ohio. And S.J. Perlman, who wrote with a thesaurus in one hand and who had gorgeous, gorgeous Baroque language. Uh, E.B. White, of course, and A.J. Liebling and all of the others. I was thinking about all of this this morning on this gorgeous, gorgeous day in Baltimore, sitting down by the water and having chincoteague oysters and having corn chowder and having a little striped bass for lunch and a little Maryland striped bass. 
I left the hotel uh, this morning uh, to go to church, and uh, I found my way by accident off to a church called Grace in St. Peter's, which is an old brownstone church um, not too far from, from here. I passed up an Episcopal church called St. Paul's uh, because I'm from St. Paul, and uh, I was afraid I might run into somebody. And I find myself in this magnificent temple in the midst of a very quiet downtown, brownstone building, stained glass, and ancient tile floor, box pews of a kind we don't have in the Midwest, uh, statuary. And I realize that I have not come to a Midwestern Episcopal church. I have come to an Anglo-Catholic Church. I'm here in a congregation of perhaps 30 people sitting in this enormous church. There are fewer people in the congregation than there are people on the prayer list for us to <laughs> pray for. There are almost fewer of us in the congregation than there are people up in the chancel. There's a gorgeous choir white-robed choristers who stand on the chancel under this great high arch and sing pure voices, the curie and the glory and the sanctus, and without any projection on their part, their voices give this great air of kindness to the entire cold stone wood church. It's an Anglo-Catholic service, different from the low church that I'm familiar with. The priest is chanting what he would ordinarily simply say. He's not wearing a little lapel microphone. And at the end of the service, to my astonishment, we do the rosary, which I've never done before in my life. We sing the rosary. The, there is smoke, of course. There's a great swinging of the censer, and, and there's a great deal of, of parading back and forth and precision bowing and, and, and genuflecting and, and, and movement. And though it's the sort of place that my father would never have set foot in as a sanctified brethren, nonetheless, my thoughts during this service keep going back to to my father, who's been dead now for six years, and whose birthday is October 12th. So I think of him, a man whom I pretty successfully ignored while he was alive, and he now comes back to me. Here I am in a church of the sort that my people ran away from. The Sanctified Brethren, a uh, millennialist uh, church, fundamentalist, uh, did away with all clergy, all statuary, worshipped in very plain surroundings on Sunday. But nonetheless, these Anglo-Catholic Episcopalians carry out in their own way the central principle of my father's life, which was faithfulness fidelity, 
the very thing that I rebelled against as a child. Here they are in an enormous, beautiful church in downtown Baltimore, carrying out a liturgy which is not on the ascendant in Christianity today. This is not where the crowds are going. They're all going towards a kind of a happy, uh, simple, basic prosperity gospel. Um, here is a church which is faithful and where it truly does not matter that there are only 30 people for high mass on Sunday morning. It does not matter. They're here as a service to whoever should come in, and whoever comes in is whoever God wanted to be here, and we accept this, and onward they go. It brought me to tears, this service this morning, as strange as it was for a low church Midwesterner to be with the smoke and the candles and the bowing and the genuflecting. I sat and wept to think of my own father, who never would have set foot in this place, and who was nonetheless faithful to his dwindling band of little fundamentalists as all of the children scattered as they went off to bigger, more successful churches, as his children moved away, as his fortunes in life changed. My father nonetheless remained faithful to what he believed. Faithfulness was the central principle of his life and the one against which I rebelled. I decided early on one reason for going to the library was that I did not want to live a small life. My father chose a small life with this small group of people stuck with them all of his born days. I did not want to live an ordinary life. I wanted to take big risks and make my own life. And if it, come, if it came down to choices between caution and danger, I would choose danger, so long as it didn't involve water. <laughs> and that's what the stories of Lake Wobegon are about. That's what I realized this morning in church. That's why I came to Baltimore, I guess, was to uh, learn the meaning of my own life. The, um, the gospel um, message had nothing to do with me, I don't think, I don't know. It, uh, it, uh, it was about uh, the ten lepers whom Jesus healed, and only one, as they went skipping down the road rejoicing, only one leper thought to come back and thank him, and this one leper was the foreigner, the Samaritan, the outsider. I don't think that has anything to do with me, but now that I, now that I bring it up, uh, maybe, it, maybe it has some relevance. Here I am. I'm in downtown Baltimore. I'm the Samaritan. I'm the 
foreigner, I feel more grateful than I can say for that church this morning. Here's a little town in Minnesota populated by Norwegian Lutherans, German Catholics, first settled by Unitarian missionaries who came to try to convert the Indians through the use of interpretive dance. And then the Norwegians, in flight from poverty in Norway during the great herring famine of the 1870s, and the German Catholics, who were actually on their way to St. Louis, but they misread their maps <laughs> and uh, refused to admit this, uh, especially to themselves. And, uh, and so settled there as if it were the place that God had meant them to go, which after a, a few generations was true. Here is a place where you know everybody from the time you're eight or ten years old. You know all sorts of things about people. You've, you've seen people's underwear hanging up on the line. You've, you've overheard enough conversations to have picked up all of the leading items of gossip in this town. Here is a town where you are known, you are known utterly by the time you are 14 or 15 years old. Your reputation is stamped, engraved in stone. A place that one fears being faithful to because it would mean accepting their opinion of who you are. And so you run away from it as fast as you can through the pretensions of, of youth. You pretend that you're not from there. In this way, you convince yourself. You read books that they don't read. I love to go back to Lake Wobegon when I was in college and bring Aristotle and Plato and set them down on the counter of the Chatterbox Cafe so that people could see I was no longer part of this bunch, these people down here. And then you grow up and, or try to, and then you come to an age when it dawns on you that it is your father's voice coming out of your head. It's your mother's philosophy of life that is really steering your course, whether you like to think so or not. Those are the stories of Lake Wobegon, are about where we come from and what we cannot get away from. They're dark people. Most of them are. Most of the light-hearted people moved off to California where they were better able to express that. Where dark people brought up to believe that life is suffering, life is adversity. It may seem easy and pleasant from time to time, but be patient, this will pass. <laughs> and you will soon be in trouble again. This is the normal course of things. Do not be surprised by things going wrong. This is in the nature 
Uh, and this is the basis of our comedy, of our sense of humor, is the inevitability of failure and disgrace and defeat. Don't get on too high a horse about yourself. Don't think you are somebody. This is the basic bedrock precept of Lake Wobegon. The Norwegians brought this saying over, Duske Egetoi, do I know it? You should not think that you are somebody. Do not think you are better than other people. Dream on, but if you're going to have a big dream, make sure you've got friends around you who can rescue you from them. This is the story of Lake Wobegon. I was running away fast and furiously from this town uh, for the first half of my life. I got into radio when I was in college. I went to work on an ore boat on Lake Superior called the J.J. O'Connell. I, I was a cabin boy, uh, which meant that I went and got coffee for the old man. We were sailing out of Duluth without a load. We were riding high on the water, and the rest of the crew was down below decks. We were heading on a northeast course towards Sault Ste. Marie when a northeaster came up, and soon we were bucking 30-foot waves and water crashing across the bow and even crashing into the pilot house, busted up the glass, and soon our radar was no longer operative. And the old man handed me the microphone, and he said, you've got to get on the radio so that the Coast Guard can get a fix on our position. You have to go on the radio and stay on the radio. And so I picked up that microphone, and I just said everything I could think of. I, two hours, I was on the same as I do now on Saturday nights. I would, <laughs> except I did it all by myself. I was singing songs and telling stories and reciting Bible verses and... Uh, when I ran out of those, I was telling jokes, I was doing limericks. There was a young girl from Madras who had a remarkable ass. <laughs> Not soft, round, and pink, as you probably think, but the kind with long ears that eats grass. <laughs> there, was, uh, there was an old man of Khartoum who kept a young sheep in his room. It reminds me, he said, of a loved one long dead and I never can quite recall whom. I just went on and on. It was, a, it was a great exercise. I didn't get a job out of that, but I got a certain sense of self-confidence. Got a job the next summer for Mark Twain days in St. Paul. I was hired to dress up as Huck Finn and to pole a raft. Actually, it was a pontoon boat, but it was made to look like a raft across the Mississippi there in St. Paul carry passengers across with a barbecue in the stern. I was barefoot and smoked a little corncob pipe and had raggedy clothes, and I said pithy things out of Mark Twain that I had, that I had memorized. Clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence in society, that sort of thing. <laughs> the raft came across the wake of a steamboat as I was polling 26 people across the river on this 18-foot raft. They're all jammed in together. We were okay until 
the barbecue in the stern tipped over and red-hot coals skittered across the deck towards us. Now, we were mostly Lutherans, and Lutherans don't pay much attention to the book of Revelations, but <laughs> there it was, come to life. And uh, <laughs> so they all pitched over the rail, and I went over with them and saved a man from drowning who turned out to be the manager of a radio station. He thought that I saved him from drowning. Actually, the water was only about three and a half feet deep, but <laughs> I grabbed him by his ankles and I towed him in, so he thought he was in greater danger than he was. And I was hired to work on the Rise and Shine gospel show, which is on at five o'clock in the morning, and to... Uh, do the livestock report then. Numbers one, two, and three, 225, 240 pound canners and cutters, 1875 to 1925, and to do, do the weather, which at that time of year was colder, usually. That was the forecast, was <laughs> colder with snow. It was a character building experience, getting up for a 5 a.m. show which was sponsored by a medicinal tonic, which was made by the host of the show, Wilmer Scott. It was called Economoe Medicine Root Tonic. It was made of sassafras and buffalo grass and about 40% pure alcohol. <laughs> Sold mostly to church people, <laughs> people who never would have gone into a liquor store or a saloon on their own hook, but who were happy to buy a tonic that made them feel really good. Uh, <laughs> buy it from a show which did uh, gospel songs and also did the livestock report and, and the weather as well. Wilmer Scott was the host of the show, which many people confuse with Wilbur Scott, who was a different, different person. Wilbur was the aviator and Wilmer was the broadcaster. Wilmer was fired one morning for having too much economy medicine root tonic and, uh, and doing some limericks that you should not do on the radio. The, the young man from Antietam and the young man of Buckingham and so forth. Wilbur Scott was the aviator who was the first man to fly solo the length of the Mississippi River from New Orleans up to Bemidji, Minnesota. Flew in his little beach craft 1957, New Orleans, Memphis, St. Louis, Dubuque, St. Paul, Minneapolis, and then on up to Bemidji, the headwaters of the Mississippi, but you probably knew that already. He was disappointed when he got to Bemidji and saw that nobody had come out to meet him. There was no band down below, no fire trucks, no big crowd gathered as he prepared to land at the municipal landing strip. And and so he was afraid that if he landed without anybody there, he'd have no witnesses, he'd have no record. So he alerted them to his presence by setting off signal rockets from the cockpit. And he had the distinction of becoming the first civilian pilot to shoot himself down. He was not the person I started out in radio with. He was an entirely different person. I got into radio, and then looking for something to do, 
I went off to Nashville, Tennessee and wrote a story for the New Yorker magazine about the Grand Ole Opry, 1974 in the spring. Went to this old uh, tabernacle down just off Broadway in, in Nashville in a seedy part of town and spent a week there and wrote a piece for the magazine about it and they published it. And I had this little thought sitting up in the balcony watching Stonewall Jackson and Dolly Parton and Porter Wagner and Johnny Cash and Chet Atkins and all the stars come across the stage of the Opry. I thought, you could do this. You could go back to St. Paul and start a radio show. This would be fun. I had no social life anyway, and, and, uh, and I was just a writer, and, 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 and I, I, I was looking for something to get me out of the house, and it just, it just seemed like something that would be enjoyable. So I made plans to start this radio show. In the meantime, I needed to spend some of the money that the New Yorker had paid me. And so I took my wife and my little boy off on a train trip on the Empire Builder to the coast, to San Francisco. I spent money, big money, on this trip. We got Pullman accommodations. I rebelled against my father by becoming a spendthrift. Our train derailed near Sandpoint, Idaho on the second night out of St. Paul. Not violently, it just sort of rocked to one side and the car wound up in the ditch and we climbed out of our bunks and we got aboard a bus, which since we were going to transfer in Seattle to the Coast Starlight, the train heading south to San Francisco, they took us to Portland, Oregon, which was on the route of that train. We arrived there an hour and a half before the Coast Starlight did. I was there in my finery, having just achieved this great success with The New Yorker and had big plans for a new radio show, and I had started working on a new story, which I really loved. And it all came crashing down when I took my little boy into the men's room to pee, which took a little while, and, and, and one thing after another, somehow I walked away from the men's room with my boy, and we walked around the streets of Portland, Oregon for about 15 minutes when I remembered that I had left my briefcase in the men's room, and it had the story in it. I tore back there. It was gone, which is the danger of buying a really good briefcase. You should always carry your stuff around in something really crummy. I dashed around the neighborhood looking in refuse bins for some papers. I knew that they didn't want what was inside the briefcase. I didn't find it. I got on the train filled with grief and self-pity, which I medicated that evening with some scotch. And by midnight or so, I had forgotten everything that was in that story. It was the first story I'd written in a long time, which was about the people I come from, from farm people in Minnesota and, and about a small town. I couldn't remember anything in it. 
it really weighed heavily on me for weeks after that. The fact that it was gone so completely, you really believe if you are a writer that everything good that's happened to you, everything you've thought up is up there in your head someplace. That's why I don't use a script to do the news from Lake Wobegon on the show. You just walk out there. It's all in your head someplace. You just need to have the motivation. Terror works. <laughs> and so, on the theory that if I put myself under a little pressure, this beautiful story, which got more and more beautiful <laughs> as weeks went by, would come back to me. I started telling stories about a small town on the radio, thinking that one day it would just all bloom in my mind. It would all come back. I've been at the show for 33 years now, and I still don't remember anything about that story. <laughs> and so that's why I persist. I persist because I don't have it yet. It hasn't come back to me. I was born with a sense of failure. I have come from dark people. And uh, a sense of failure is what keeps me going. Even now, this year, when I've reached about two months ago, the age that we all associate with retirement. A kind of a catastrophic day. I, I left home. I was afraid they'd put on a party. I didn't want to pretend to be cheerful. I especially didn't want to celebrate my birthday around people my own age, which <laughs> would be deeply discouraging. Sit with a bunch of geezers with... Uh, thinning hair who uh, sang happy birthday to you in their cracked, ruined voices, <laughs> and they bring in a birthday cake with enough candles that flames looks like the wreck of the Hindenburg, <laughs> and you're supposed to put the best face on it possible. Instead, I took off for New York, and I have a couple of nieces out there and some other young people I know in their early 20s who I'd love to hang out with. People in their early 20s let me hang out with them because I usually pick up the check. And, uh, <laughs> so I took them out to dinner on the evening of my 65th birthday. I had sort of come to peace with it I figured that getting old had been my goal, after all, since childhood. <laughs> I would have been disappointed not to get there. Being with people in their early 20s meant that I didn't have to listen to somebody talk about Medicare plans or 401ks or talk about calcium supplements. Uh, we could just sit and talk about the world and the uncertainty of our lives, which is very intense for people in their early 20s, and, and, and romantic disaster waiting you someplace, and, and fascinating weird people you've run into lately. The conversation is much, much livelier. I've come back to Minnesota since then, ever so often hearing from classmates, 
looking forward to their retirement. God bless them. I wish them all well. I think they're all crazy. I'm not especially anxious to hang around with them. My high school reunion was a disaster. Women I once lusted after now turned into their grandmothers. <laughs> People who led interesting and in intense lives now planning to go off to the Southwest. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Liz, my best friend from high school, bought herself a condominium in Phoenix, of all places, this enormous slum of condominiums and shopping centers, Mesa, Scottsdale, Phoenix, everything just exactly alike. It goes on for a hundred miles. What she is thinking of, I do not know. I can't imagine. I can't. She, I, she's not a desert person. She's a northern person. She's an arboreal person. To go out there, what a, does she think the Hopi and the Navajo are going to welcome her into their tribe or what? Are they going <laughs> to teach them the condo all by herself. She's going to be watching the classic movie channel at 8 o'clock in the morning, watching old Jimmy Stewart movies just to hear a little bit of Midwestern twang, developing a terrible Kahlua habit. But that's her choice. My choice is to, is to go on doing what I'm doing. I think there needs to be somebody on the radio who remembers the old life and the old country, who remembers when we used to drive our cars down two-lane concrete roads and our little boy was standing in the front seat next to us. <laughs> we were driving 65 miles an hour towards North Dakota. We'd never heard of Ralph Nader. We didn't <laughs> know he existed. Driving 65, there he stood. He was so happy, standing. Nowadays, you'd be arrested for this, and you'd be put through a program. <laughs> Back then, it was just how we were. We, Daddy was chain-smoking pell-mells. The car windows were closed. <laughs> we were listening to songs on the radio, and they were popular songs, but they were songs whose lyrics everybody knew, and everybody whistled the melodies. I came too late for the era in which all men wore hats. I came a little bit after that. But I came early enough to see the last of the 19th century, to see old fundamentalist men in black suits, wool suits even on Sundays, their white shirts buttoned up to the very top, severe men who farmed with horses because that was what they knew. So they kept replacing teams of Belgian horses, and you had the amazing experience as a boy to be hoisted up on top of one 
and hanging on to his harness as he went jingling down a dirt road and Uncle Jim on the hay rack behind you. I remember kerosene lamps and I remember outhouses all lost now, all gone. I came at the very end of the era of privy tipping, which I think of in October. Because it was only done one night of the year, Halloween. I'll close with this and then we'll open this up to questions. This story may invite more questions than I can answer, but there were a few families that had privies. They were poor families, and so we couldn't tip their privies because you should never ever pick on people who are worse off than yourself. But there was a year when we went north to the lake, and up at the lake there were privies, and I got to tip over Hilmer Gunsel's privy with him inside it, <laughs> which was the idea, of course. He was an old Republican, and Republicans are the very people whose privies you would want to tip. <laughs> he knew that we were out there waiting in the woods, but when nature calls, nature is insistent. And so he went out to the privy. He yelled at us. He said, I know you're out there. And then he went into the privy. <laughs> and we listened very carefully for the unmistakable sound that meant that he was busy. And what's more, that meant that he was seated and not standing. And when we heard that sound, we dashed in from the weeds, and we put our shoulders to it, and we tipped it forward onto the door. Satire is cruel. Comedy is cruel. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you. He was sort of a good sport about it. I told my dad about it. I ordinarily didn't confess anything to my dad. I felt that secrecy was really the key to everything. And this was back in a day and age when parents did not take a direct interest in their children's upbringing. You were brought up by other children, basically. <laughs> parents had their own lives. We just kind of ran free like coyotes. We just were <laughs> off with other, with other children from the time you were old enough to tie your shoelaces and old enough to ask where the toilet was. You were pushed out the door and you, and you, and you, and you were sent out. And most of the time they had no idea where you were. There, there was no little cell phone to, to keep track of you. No, no text messaging. No, nothing of the sort. And the, 
parents did not arrange your social life for you back in the day. There were no play dates. You, the concept was alien to us. You just, they, 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 they did what they were supposed to do in a kind of a formal uh, ceremonial way, and that, was, and that was it. Girls stayed inside somewhat and played with dolls and worked with extended family groups and learned to work out problems through negotiation and role-playing. Boys basically ran around and we shot each other. We... <laughs> but he had heard that we had tipped over a privy up at the lake, and, uh, and I, I confessed that I had been part of it. There were others involved, but there were others. And then my father confessed that he had once done this himself. This was an amazing moment to me. My father confessing A mischievous deed, perhaps a bad deed, an evil deed, perhaps, in his youth. He had never done this before. My father had always been a paragon of virtue to me. This was a crack in the armor. I, I was astonished. I thought of it this morning in church. I, I wasn't about to get up and talk about it. <laughs> and thankfully, the Anglo-Catholic mass doesn't have an open window for witnessing. <laughs> but here was a potentially evil thing that my father had done. You see, we were brought up to believe that you're responsible for the consequences of your action, whether you intended them or not. And so, here, my father had once tipped privies in town. He had tipped privies of the newspaper editor the newspaper editor who carried a kerosene lamp out to the privy because it was night and who carried a shotgun as well <laughs> to try to scare off the boys knowing that this was Halloween, the one night of the year when you could do this. He yelled at them before he got into the privy and he hung the kerosene lamp up on the wall and then he went about his business. They heard him, and they dashed down out of the woods, the same as we did. How did we know this? Nobody told us how to do it. We just picked it up. <laughs> they dashed down out of the woods, and they tipped it over onto the door, and the kerosene lamp smashed and it caught fire, and there was a burst of flame inside. And then there was a panicky newspaper man with his pants around his ankles who took the only exit there was, the hole. And there was a pit waiting for him, and he went into it. What happened then, I asked my dad. <laughs> well, he said we waited around for just a moment to make sure that he wasn't drowning. And when he stood up, we got out of there as fast as we could. And we were the best boys from then on. Nobody was ever so well behaved 
as we were after that night. An astonishing thing, your father telling you a story about his own misbehavior that might have killed somebody, that made a permanent mark on a journalist. It was an astonishing moment in my childhood. Well, there's another reason for writing fiction. It's a chance to confess your sins <laughs> and, to, um, and to do it and leave yourself out of it, but not really. Now, I've talked sort of uh, ad libitum here for a while. Are there any questions from this fine uh, group of people here? So, yes, right back here. Yes, ma'am. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Um, and I was sort of glad to see Bruno in the new book, um, but he's in rather bad condition. Will do you, do you envision him improving in the next book? You're asking about Bruno the fishing dog. Yes. Yes, right. Yes, Bruno uh, is a is a is a character who uh, I think uh, came into. Uh, Lake Wobegon uh, 20-some years ago. I was doing the show in Red Wing, Minnesota, and I met uh, a family uh, who, um, who had a dog who caught fish. But this was back um, before many people had, had video cameras, and so they couldn't prove it, really. They just had a snapshot, but, you know, a dog wading in the water, what does that but he was a dog who had caught fish. And so from that, I, 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 I invented Bruno, a dog who caught a big fish when he was a pup and took the fish in his mouth and took it to his owner, Inga. And he was so fussed over and petted for this that he spent the rest of his life trying to repeat this early success the perils of success, that it may then rule your life. Uh, people liked uh, uh, Bruno and wanted to, him to come back, but I only had that one story about him. <laughs> but then I brought him back in this novel. He, he becomes uh, a, a shepherd. He's the dog who, because he smells so bad, as a result of wading in the water trying to catch fish and becoming mildewed and fungus-ridden, um, and also because he has a fish in his mouth which had been floating on the water for a long time. Because this dog smells so bad, and he walks toward the Lutheran pastors who are standing on the dock, he forces them all aboard the pontoon boat. 26 pastors on an 18-foot pontoon boat with a barbecue in the stern. <laughs> and, uh, and off they go. I can't imagine what Bruno has left uh, to, to do in fiction, but uh, I'll keep him in mind. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Keeler, I apologize for being a geezer with a cracking voice. But I would like to ask you this question. Uh, you've been talking about privies and Minneapolis. I'd like you to deal with our social uh, paranoia in the context of a uh, crowd exhibit in Minneapolis Airport, the Larry Craig Toilet. Would you uh, compare privies 
back in the old days when you could tip them and what's happening in Minneapolis in the toilet. Well, now that all happened in Minneapolis, I have to uh, point out. I come from, uh, from St. Paul, which is a very different, uh, very different story. I wrote a song about this, uh, which, uh, which I think uh, may shed light on the, whole, on the whole thing with your indulgence. Um, Oh, never plead guilty to a misdemeanor. In Minnesota, you owe it to yourself to talk to a lawyer. There ought to be one you can go to. Oh, Minnesota, it may be greener. Where the women are taller and the men are leaner. It is the home of the Hormel Wiener, but never plead guilty to a misdemeanor if you are innocent. Oh, there was a man, his name was Larry, a very good man, but he became very much an object of suspicion when he reached under his partition. <laughs> oh, he tapped his foot and he would not stop, and he reached out and touched a cop. He was just looking for a very good time, but it, they accused him of a crime. So never plead guilty to a misdemeanor. In Minnesota, you owe it to yourself to talk to a lawyer. There ought to be one you can go to. Minnesota, it may be greener. The women are taller and the men are leaner. It is the home of the Hormel Wiener, but never plead guilty to a misdemeanor if you are innocent. Bum, bum. Yes. Does that answer all questions, then? <laughs> I guess. I guess so. Yes, yes, ma'am. She's asking about uh, a little five-minute show I do on a uh, public radio called The Writer's Almanac, which is uh, the events of the day. And and, uh, and a poem uh, for each day. I, um, I record them uh, usually a whole week at a time. Um, you can't do them one at a time, which I would rather do, uh, because all of these programs go through a computer in Washington at National Public Radio, and that's how they're disseminated. And uh, so we need to work uh, a month ahead or so. The, the Almanac calendar is, 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 is pretty ordinary. It sort of focuses on writers, but including scientists and, uh, and, and all, sorts of, all sorts of writers and some historical events just to sort of prompt people, you know, remember uh, little things about people. George Bernard Shaw, whose bust is over there, was um, a man who, um, who tried to be a novelist in, in London, uh, an Anglo-Irishman who moved to London and lived with his mother. This is the sort of thing you learn from the writer's almanac. Lived with his mother. She encouraged him to quit his job at a bank, and he wrote five novels five novels 
none of which ever did anything. They didn't get good reviews. They didn't, weren't successful at all. And, and I think the two of them were not even published um, before he found his, his niche, which was to write theater criticism and then to write plays himself. He was a slow starter, George Bernard Shaw. His mother supported him through, I believe, eight or nine years that it took to write those five novels and take this big, long, wide direction. That was a long, long time ago, and she never, ever suggested to him that he was doing the wrong thing. Better than the National Endowment for the Arts, the support <laughs> of your mother. And uh, so that was the lesson of... of George Bernard, Shaw's, uh, George Bernard Shaw's life. Always the most interesting thing about, about writers uh, is, is, the, is their early struggle and, uh, and, and, and their missteps and their misfortune. And, and then something happens that, that turns them in the direction which then proves, uh, proves rewarding for them. The later years, their successful years, are just pretty much not very interesting but uh, and then the poems I choose the poems are poems that can be understood easily by people who are busy doing other things who are frying up eggs and hash browns and uh, and and who have children who are tugging at them and so that eliminates a lot of a lot of poetry I also it should be something you can understand with one hearing while other things are going on and that you can remember some of. To me, that's the indication of success in writing is if it's memorable. And it should be a poem which, I don't know how to put this, but it should be a poem that lifts you up in some way. Even if it's a poem about discouragement and defeat, it is nonetheless a poem that, that gives us courage, which I think is the purpose of all great art, is to give people the strength to go on. All great art, I think, is about survival. It's not about triumph, but it's about enduring. So that's what I, that's what I do. Let me close with um, a poem, as long as you brought it up. I think I've answered everything. Um, This is a poem that uh, was um, written by a teacher of mine at the University of Minnesota who went on uh, to become a, a very well-known American poet, James Wright. He taught humanities, however. He didn't teach poetry. He, he was teaching us Dickens and Turgenev and Dante in one course uh, in, in a great old Gothic hall at the University of Minnesota. This would be 19... 62, I think, 61 or 62, and in a, in, a, in a crowded room, undergraduates, everybody's smoking practically, little tuna fish cans for ashtrays, the windows tight shut, him standing at a lectern with notes, wearing glasses almost exactly like, like this, a very intense man, chain-smoking and talking with great urgency about Dante. And 
going through a very difficult period in his own life, I learned later, but sensed then. He was struggling with alcohol. His wife had left him. She had taken his two sons. His life was in chaos. He was about to lose his job at the University of Minnesota and, and, be, and be fired and then go off and wind up in New York City where he was very happy at Hunter College. Anyway, all of this was, was, was happening to him, but in the midst of all of this chaos in his own life, he had written this poem. And when I was his student, I came across the poem in a magazine. I think it was in The New Yorker. Astonished to see that my professor, the guy in the black horn-rimmed glasses, the nervous guy, chain-smoking, who sometimes smelled of whiskey in an early morning class and sometimes was unsteady, had written this redemptive poem, this beautiful poem. I owed him such a debt that later, years later, when I could repay it, I got the highway department in Minnesota at a rest stop near Rochester, Minnesota to put up a big brass plaque on a post with this poem on it. And school children from Rochester came in to, for the dedication. And a couple of schoolgirls brought their horses because there are two horses in the poem. So I had the pleasure of reciting this once outdoors near Rochester, a poem by James Wright called A Blessing. Just off the highway to Rochester, Minnesota, twilight bound softly forth in the grass, and the eyes of those two Indian ponies darken with kindness. They have come gladly out of the willows to welcome my friend and me. We step over the barbed wire into the meadow where they have been grazing all day alone. They ripple tensely. They can hardly contain their happiness that we have come. They love each other. There is no loneliness like theirs. At home, once more, they begin munching the young tufts of spring in the darkness. I would like to hold the slenderer one in my arms, for she has come over and nuzzled my left hand. Something in the breeze moves me to caress her long ear, which is delicate as the skin over a girl's wrist. She is black and white. Her mane falls wild over her forehead. Suddenly, I realize that if I stepped out of my body, I would break into blossom. To have written a poem as beautiful as that, as simple as that, as full of light as that, to me is the ultimate service of art. And to have done it 
when your own life was falling to pieces around you. It was a great, great service, just as the service this morning at Grace and St. Peter's Church and all those people in white up front doing what they needed to do, doing what they wanted to do for whoever happened to be there. Well, one person was there, I was there, and it made a big difference. So I'm so glad that I came to Baltimore, and I can't wait to come back. Thank you.